Dumont podcast show, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Chapter 1. The house stood on a slight rise, just the edge of the village. It stood on its own and looked over a broad spread of west country farmland. Not a remarkable house by any means. It was about 30 years old, squattish, squarish, made of brick, and had four windows set in the front of a size proportion which more or less exactly the same, exactly failed to please the eye. The only person to whom the house was in any way special was Arthur Dent, and it was only because it happened to be the one he lived in. He had lived in it for about three years, ever since he had moved out of London, because it made him nervous and irritable. He was about thirty as well, dark-haired, and never quite as, as easy of himself. The thing that used to worry him most was the fact that he, the people always used to ask him that he was looking so worried about. He, he worked on a local radio station. He was always used to tell his friends was a lot more, more interesting than they probably thought. It was too. Most of his friends worked in advertising. It wasn't properly registered with Arthur that the council wanted to knock down his house and build a bypass instead. Eight o'clock on Thursday morning, Arthur didn't feel very didn't feel very good. He woke up blurly, blurly, got up, wandered blurly round the room, opened the window, saw a bulldozer, found found his slippers, stopped off to the bathroom to wash. Toothpaste on the brush, so scrub. Jamie Mirror pointed to the ceiling, he adjusted it. For a moment he reflected a second bulldozer through the bathroom window. Properly, properly adjusted, it reflected Arthur Dent's bristles. He shaved them off, washed, dried, and stopped off to the kitchen to find something pleasant to put on his mouth. Kettle, plug, fridge, milk, coffee, yawn. The word bulldozer wandered through his mind for a moment in search of something to connect it with. Bulldozer outside of the kitchen window was quite a big one. He stared at it. Yellow, he thought, and stomped off back to his bedroom to get dressed. Passing the bathroom, he stopped to drink a large glass of water. Oh, and the other. He began to suspect that he was, he was hungover. Why was he hungover? Had he been drinking the night before? He was supposed to, he went, I suppose he must have been. He caught a glint in the shaving mirror. Yellow, he thought, and stomped on to the, the bedroom. He stood and thought, the pub, he thought. Oh dear, the pub. He vaguely remembered being angry. Angry about something that seemed important. And been telling people about telling people about it in great length. He rather suspected his cleverness visual reflection was a glazed looks on over other people's faces. Something about a new bypass he just found out about had been in the pipeline for months, only no one seemed to have known about it. Ridiculous. He took a swig of water. It would sort itself out. He, did, he decided that no one would want it to bypass. Council didn't have a leg to stand on. But he, it would sort itself out. God, what a terrible hangover. It had earned, it had earned him through... He looked at himself in the world mirror. He stuck out his tongue. Yellow. He thought the word yellow wandered through his mind in search of something to connect it with. Fifteen seconds later, he was out of the house, lying in front of a big yellow 
bulldozer that was advancing up to his garden path. Mr. El Poser, as they say, a human. In other words, he was a carbon-based life form descended from an ape. Most specifically, he was faulty, fat and shabby and worked for the local council. Curiously enough, though, he didn't know it. He was also a direct male descendant of Genghis Khan. Though infinitely generations of racial mixing had so jungled up his genes that he had no discernible Mongolian characteristics and only vagaries left in Mr. L. Poser of his mighty ancestry that once pronounced stoutness about a turn and a predection of little fur hats. He was in no means a great warrior. In fact, he was a nervous, worried man. Today he was particularly nervous and worried because something had gone seriously wrong with his job, which was to, was to see that Arthur Dent's house got cleared out the way before the, the day was out. Come off it, Mr. Dent, he said. You can't win, you know. But you can lie in front of the bulldozer indefinitely. He tried to make his eyes ablaze fiercely, but he... He just wouldn't do it. Arthur lay in the mud and squelched at him. I'm game, he said. We'll see you rust first. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it, said Mr. Proza, gripping his fur hat and rolling it round at the top of his head. This boy's house has got to be built, It's going and it's going to be built. First I've heard of it, said Arthur. Why why is it got to be built? Mr. Poser shook his finger uh, for a bit, then stopped to put it away again. What do you mean, why is it got to be built? He said, it's a bypass. You've got to, you've got to build, build bypasses. Bypasses are devices which allow some people to drive through from point A to point B very fast, whilst some other people dash through from point B to point A very fast. People living in point C being a point directly in between, are often given to wonder what's so great about the, about point A, so that's that, that so many people of point B are so keen to get there, and there's no and that what's so great about point B, and so that so many people of point A are so keen to get there, they often wish that the people would just once and for all work out where the hell they wanted to be, Mr. Poiver. Poser, Poser, wanted to be a point D. Point D wasn't anything in particular. It was just it was an inconvenient point, a very long way from points A, B, and C. He would have a nice little cottage of a point D, which acts over the door. Spent a nice, a pleasant amount of time at point E, where he was the nearest pub to point D. His wife, of course, wanted climbing roses. He wanted an axe. He didn't know why. He just liked axes. He flushed, flushed hotly under the derisive grins of the bulldozer drivers. He shifted his weight from foot to foot, but he was equally uncomfortable on each. Obviously, someone had been appallingly incompetent. He hoped to God it wasn't him. Mr. Poser said, You are quite entitled to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time, you know. Appropriate time? Who to do for? Appropriate time? First I knew about it was when the workman arrived at my home yesterday. I asked him if he came to clean the windows. He said no, he came to demolish the house. He didn't tell me straight away, of course. 
Oh, no, first he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then told me. But, Mr. Dent, the plans have been available in the local planning office for the last nine months. Oh, yes. Well, as soon as I heard, I went straight to see them yesterday afternoon. You haven't exactly gone out of your way to call attention to them, you know. I mean, like actually telling someone or something. But plans are on display. On display, I eventually got I had to go down to the cellar to find them. That that's a display. That's a display department with a torch. Well, the lights had probably gone. So are the stairs. But look, you found a notice, didn't you? Yes, said Arthur. Yes, I did. Is a display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet struck in a disused directory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the leopard. A cloud passed overhead. It, it, it cast a shadow over Arthur Dent. He lay plumped up on his elbow in the cold mud. It cast a shadow of Arthur Dent's house. Mr. Poulter frowned at it. It's not as if it's a particularly very nice house, he said. I'm sorry, but it happened, I happen to like it. You like the bypass? Oh, shut up, said Arthur Dent. Shut up and go away. Take your bloody bypass with you. You haven't got a leg to stand on and you know it. Mr. Pine's mouth opened and closed a couple of times with his mind was for a moment filled with inexplicable but terrible attraction, attractive visions of Arthur House being consumed with fire and Arthur himself running screaming from blazing ruin with at least three hefty spears protruding from his back. Mr. Poyser often bothered with visitors like these had made that made him nervous was often bothered with visions like those that made him feel very nervous. He stuttered for a moment and then pulled himself together. Mr. Dent, he said. Hello. Yes, said Arthur. Some factual information for you. Have you any idea how much damage a bulldozer could would suffer if I were to let the bo- it roll over you? How much, said Arthur. None at all, said Mr. Potter, still nervously, all wondering why his brain filled up with a thousand hairy horsemen all shouting at him. By a curious coincidence, none of all, not, not, none at all is exactly how much suspicion the ape descended Arthur Dent had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet in the vicinity of Beltagate, you see, and not from Guildford, as he usually claimed. Arthur Dent never, ever suspected this. His friend of his had first arrived on the planet some fifteen Earth years previously, and worked hard to blend himself into Earth society, but it must be said of some success. For instance, he spent some fifteen years pretending to be an out-of-work actor, which was plausible enough. He had made one careless blunder, though, because he had skipped on a bit on his protein research. The information that had gathered had led him to choose the name for Perfect as being nicely incapricious. It was not conspicuous at all. His features were striking, but not conspicuous as handsome. His hair was wiry and gingerous and blushed to oh, back was with, temp- with front of temples, his skin seemed to be pulled backwards from the nose. There was nothing very slightly odd about him, but it was difficult to say that it was, what it was. Perhaps it was his eyes didn't blink often enough, and when he talked to him at any length of time, his eyes began involuntary to water on, its, on, its, on his behalf. Perhaps it was his singularly small, 
too broadly, gave people an unnerving impression he was about to go to go for the neck. He struck most of the friends as he had made he had made Earthson centric, but a harmless one, and a woolly boozer without some oddly oddish habits. For instance, he would often get crash university parties, get pretty drunk, and start making fun of the astrophysicists who he would find he could find until he got thrown out. Sometimes he would get seized with oddly distracted moods, and stare into sky as if hypnotised until someone asked him what we were doing. Then he would start start guiltily for a moment relax and grin. Oh. Just looking for flying saucers. He would joke and everyone would laugh and ask what sort of flying saucers he was looking for. Green ones. He would reply with a wicked grin. Laugh wildly for a moment and then suddenly lunge for the nearest bar and by enormous round of drinks. Evening like this was usually ended badly. Paul would get out of his skull and whiskey, huddle into a call, call her some girl and explain to her in a slurred phrase that honestly the colour of flying saucers doesn't matter that much really. Therefore, staggering semi paralytic down the night streets to he would often ask passing policemen if he knew the way to Bergalese. A policeman would Usually you say something like, Don't you think it's about time you went off home, sir? I'm trying to, baby. I'm trying to, is what Ford invariably replied to these occasions. In fact, he was really looking out for the for when he stared distinctly into the night sky. It was any, any kind of flying saucer at all. The reason was he had said green was that green was the additional space delivery of the Belize trading scouts. Full profit was desperate that any fine self at all arrive soon within fifteen years was a long time to get stranded anywhere, particularly somewhere like in mind-bogglingly dull as Earth. Full wish his flying saucer would arrive soon because he knew how to fly flying saucers down, take flying saucers down and get lists from them. He knew how to use the marvels of the universe for less than thirty Alfredian dollars a day. In fact, Ford Prince was a roving researcher for the wholly remarkable book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Human beings are great adapters, and by lunchtime, life in the environs uh, of Arthur's house was settled into a steady routine. His Arthur's accepted role to be squelching in the mud, make occasional demands to see his lawyer, his mother, or a good book. It was Mr. Poe's accepted role to tackle Arthur with occasional new ploys such as the for the public good talk, the march of progress talk, the not my house down once, you know, never look back talk, various other cultures and threats. It was a bulldozer's effective role to sit down and drink coffee and, exper- and experiment in union regulations to see how they could turn the situation into their financial advantages. The earth moved slowly in a durable course. The sun was beginning to dry out on the mud earth uh, lay in. A shadow moved across, to, across him. Hello, Arthur, said the shadow. Arthur looked at the squinting up, looked, squinting in the sun, and started to see full profit standing above him. Ford, how are you? Fine, said Ford. 
Look, are you busy? Am I busy? explained Arthur. Well, I just got all these bulldozers as things to lie in front of because they're not my house, Dan. I don't know. But other than that, ha, ha, ha. Well, not especially why. You don't have any, they don't have any sarcasm abilities. Full profit often fair to notice it unless it's concentrating. He said, Good. Is there anywhere we can talk? What? said Arthur Dent. For a few seconds, Fold seemed to ignore him. I stared fixedly into the sky, worked like a rabbit trying to get run over by a car. Then suddenly squatted down beside Arthur. We've got to talk, he said urgently. Fine, said Arthur. Talk and drink, said Fold. It's vitally important that we talk and drink. Now we'll go to the pub in the village. He looked at the sky again, nervously expectant. Look, don't you understand, shouted Arthur. He pointed at Poiser. That man wants to knock my house down. Fold glanced at him, puzzled. Well, he can do it while you're away, can't he? He asked. But I, I don't want him to. Ah, look, what's the matter with you, Fold, said Arthur. Nothing that's the matter. Listen to me. I've got to tell you the most important news you ever heard. I've got to tell you now. I've got to tell you in a saloon by the horse and ground. Groom. Groom. But why? Because you're going to need a very stiff drink. Fools started, stared at Arthur, and Arthur was astonished to find that this was beginning to we- he was beginning to weaken. He didn't realise that it was because of an old drinking game that Ford learned to play in the hyperspace ports that served the renegade mining belts in the same star system on the Orion Belter. The game was not unlike the Earth's game called Indian Wrestling, and it was played like this. Two contestants would sit either side of the table with a glass of, in front of each of them. Before, between them would be placed a bottle of a drinking spirit, also as mortalized in the ancient Orion Mine song, oh, don't give me no, no more that old jank spirit. No, don't give me any more any of that old jank spirit. For my head will fly, my tongue will lie, my eyes will fry, and I might die. Won't you pour me one more of that sinful old jank and fluid spirit? Each of these two contestants would then concentrate their will on, onto the bottle and attempt to tip it over and pour a spirit into the glass with his opponent, and who would then have to drink it? The bottle would have been refilled, and the game would be played until again and again. Once you started to lose, you would probably keep losing, because one of the effects of the drunk spirit is depressed telepsychic power. As soon as its predetermined quality had been consumed, the final loser would have to perform a forfeit, which is probably... A Something obscenely biological. Full person used to usually play to lose. Full person stared at Arthur, who was going to think that perhaps he did not want to go to the hills and the groom at all. Well, what about my house? he said privately. Ford looked across to Mr. Poison. Suddenly, a wicked thought struck him. He wants to. He wants to knock your house down. Yes, he wants to build. And that's because you're lying in front of the bulldozers. And yes, I'm sure he could come to some sort of arrangement, said Ford. Excuse me, he shouted. Poison, who was arguing with a spokesman for the bulldozer drovers. 
but whether or not Arthur Dent considered a mental health hazard, and which they might get paid for if he did. Looked around. He was surprised and slightly alarmed to find that Arthur had company. Oh, yes, hello, he called. Has Mr. Dent come to his senses yet? Can we have a moment? Called Ford. Assume, assume that he hasn't. Well, sighed Mr. Pezzer. And we also assume, said Ford, that he's going to be staying here for all day. So, so all you men are going to be standing around all day doing nothing. Could be, could be. Well, if you resigned to the fact that doing that anyway, why do you actually need him to be here, lie here for all the time you do, do you? What? You don't, said Ford patiently. Actually need him here. We suppose I've thought about this. Well, no, not as such, he said. Not exactly need. Poise was right. He thought he was one of them, wasn't making a lot of sense. Paul said, so if you, so, if I would like, just like to take it as red, he's actually here then, and I could sit, slip off down the pub half an hour. How does that sound? Mr. Poser thought it sounded perfectly potty. That sounds perfectly reasonable, he said, with a reassuring tone of voice, wondering who was trying to resort. And what, and what if you pop off for a quick one yourself later on, said Ford. We can always cover up for the you return. Thank you very much, said Mr. Poe, who no longer knew how to play this. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Yes, that's very kind. He frowned, for, then smiled, and tried to do both at once. Failed, grasped hold of his fur hat, and rolled it fretfully around the top of his head. It would assume that he would he just won. So, continued full prophet, if you just like to come here and lie down, what, said Mr. Poser? Oh, I'm sorry, said Ford. Perhaps I haven't made myself fully clear. Someone's got to be in front of the bulldozers, haven't they? Or there won't be anything to stop them driving him to Mr. Dent's house, will there? What? said Miss Bunner again. Very simple, said Ford. My client, Miss Dent, says that he would like to stop lying here in the mud on the sole condition that you come and take her over from, from him. What are you talking about, said Arthur. But Ford nudged him with his shoe to be quiet. You want me, said Mr. Foyser, smelling at his own fault to himself, to come and lie here, there? Yes. In front of the ball, does it? Yes. I said that Mr. Dent? Yes. In the mud? In, as you say, in the mud? As soon as Mr. realised he was secretly the loser, after all, his was always lifted itself as his shoulder. It was like the world as he knew it. He sighed. In turn which, you'll take Mr. Dent with you to the pub, that's it, said Mr. Ford. That's, that's it. How? That's it. Exactly. Mr. Poser took a few nervous forward steps and stopped. Promise. Promise, said Mr. Ford. I said, Ford. He turned to Arthur. Come on, he said to him. Get out and let the man down. Arthur stood up, feeling as he was in a dream. Ford beckoned to Poser, who certainly... Awkwardly, he sat down in the mud. He felt that this is his whole life as a kind of dream, and sometimes wondered whose it, whose it was and whether they were enjoying it. The mud folded itself round his bottom, his arms and ooze into his shoes. Paul looked at him severely, and no sneaky knocking down Mr. Dent's house whilst we get away, all right, he said. 
That's mere fault, growled Mr. Poser. I haven't begun to, to speculate, he continued, set himself down, about the merest possibility of, of crossing my mind. He saw the bulldozer's union representing approaching and let his heart, head sink back and close his eyes. He was trying to marshal his argument for providing that he could not constitute a mental health hazard himself. He was far from certain about this. His mind seemed to be full of noise, horses, smoke and stench of blood. This has happened to felt like miserable and felt put upon. He have never been able to explain it himself in high dimension, which he knew nothing that the mighty kind better with rage. But Mr. Fosser only trembled slightly and whimpered. He began to feel, feel, feel little pricks of water behind the eyelids, broke bureaucratic cock-ups, angry men lying in the mud, indecipherable strangers heading off the inexplicable Himmelations and an undefined army of horsemen laughing at him in his head. What a day! What a day! Full Prophet knew that it didn't matter a pair of dingo's kidneys whether Arthur's house got knocked down or not. Now, Arthur remained very worried. But can we trust him? he said. Myself? I trust him to the end of the earth, said Ford. Oh, yes, said Arthur. And how far's that? About twelve minutes away, said Ford. Come on. I need a drink. Chapter 2 That's, Here's what the Encyclopedia Galactica has to say about alcohol. It says that alcohol is a cuddler's volatile liquid formed by the formation of sugars, also notes the toxic effect of certain carbon-based life forms. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy also mentions alcohol. It says that the best drink to existence is the pan-galactic gurgle buster. It says the effect of a pan-galactic buster is like having your brain smashed out of a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. A guide also tells you which planets are the best. Pan-galactic gargle bursters are mixed on. How much you can expect to pay for one and what voluntary organisations exist to help you rehabilitate afterwards. The guide even tells you how you can mix one yourself. Take the juice of one bottle of that, that Oh, drink some spirit, he says. Pour into one measure of water from seeds of Sankoris Vave. Or that Sankoris seawater. It says, oh, those Sankoris fish. Allow three cubes of Sankoris Megagin to melt into the mixture. Must be properly iced, but uh, benzene is lost. Add three litres of Malayan marsh to bubble through. In memory of all those happy hikers who have had died of pleasure in the marshes of Philia. Over the back of the silk float a measure of quantum hypermint, extract, redoubt, and all healthy odours of the dark quantum zones, subtle, subtle, sweet, and mystic. Drop in a tooth of an aglomerate sugar sun tiger, watch it absolve, spreading as fire as an Angolian sun deep into the heart of the drink. Sprinkles them fewer and add an olive. Drink, but very carefully. A hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy sells rather better than it's Galactica. Six pints of bitter, said Paul Perfect to the barman and the horse of the ground. And quickly, please, the world's about to end. Barman of the horse of the ground. 
Groom didn't deserve this sort of treatment. He was a dignified old man. He pushed his glasses up to his nose and blinked at the full growth of it. Paul ignored him and stared out the window. So the barman looked his head at Arthur, who struggled hopelessly and said nothing. So the barman said, Oh, sir, nice word before it. And Paul um, started putting points. He tried again. Going to watch the match this afternoon, then? Paul looked, glanced around at him. No, no point, he said, and looked back at the window. Oh, that's a full conclusion, do you reckon? said the barman. Also without a chance? No, no, said Paul. It's just the world's about to end. Oh, yes, sir. So you said. And the barman, looking over his glasses at the time, officer. Lucky for, lucky escape for Arsenal if it did. Paul looked back at him, genuinely surprised. No, not really, he said. He frowned. The barman breath breathing heavily. There you are, sir. Six points, he said. Arthur smiled at him wildly and shrugged again. He turned and smiled wildly at the rest of the pub, just in case any of them heard what was going on. None of them had, and none of them would understand what he was smiling for, at them for. A man sitting next to four at the ball, bar looked at the two men, looked at the six pints, done a swift burst of a metaphoric, rider and Nancy light, and grinned at a stupid, hopeful grin at them. Get off, said Ford. They're ours. Going, giving them a look that would have an Algolian suntag get on with it, what, what it was doing. Ford slapped a five-pound note on the file and said, Keep the change. Well, for a five, thank you, sir. You've got ten minutes left to spend it. Obama simply decided to walk away for a bit. Ford, said Arthur. Could you please tell me what the hell is going on? Drink up, said Ford. You're going to need three pints to get through. Three pints, said Arthur, at lunchtime. Three pints, said The man next to Ford grinned and displayed, nodded happily. Ford ignored him. He said, time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. Very deep, said Arthur. You should send them that into the Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. Drink up. Why three pints of all of a sudden? Massive relaxant. You need it. Muscle relaxant? Muscle relaxant. Arthur stared in his beer. Do you, did I do anything wrong today, he said? Or was it the world's always been like this? I've been wrapped up in myself to notice. All right, said Right. I tried to explain how long we've known each other. How long, Arthur thought? Uh, about five years. Maybe six. Most of it seemed to be make sense of most of the time, at the time. All right, said Ford. How would you react if I told you I'm not for Guildford, after all, but for small bunny, someone who visits the Belkers? Arthur shrugged in a so-so way. I don't know, he said, taking a pull of beer. Why, why don't you, do you think that sort of thing is likely to say? Ford gave, gave up. It really wasn't worth bothering at the moment with what with what, what with what the world was about being to end. He just said, "Drink up." He added, perfectly factually, "The world's about to end." Arthur gave the rest of the pub another where it made smile. The rest of the pub frowned at him. The man waved at him, stopped smiling, and reminded his own business. This must be Thursday," said Arthur, losing himself, sinking lower over his beer. I could never cope with the hang that hang of Thursdays.
Chapter 3. On this particular Thursday, something was moving quietly through the atmosphere, many miles above the surface of the planet. Several, some things in fact, several bulldozers, huge yellow chunky, sublight somethings, huge office buildings, silent birds, they soared with ease, basking in electromagnetic rays from the star solo, bidding their time, groping, preparing. The planet beneath them was almost perfectly oblivious to their presence, which was just how they wanted it to, for the moment. The huge yellow somethings went unnoticed at Gormholy. They passed Cape Cavernal without a blip. Wilmerhammer and Joseph Bank went straight through, through them, which was a pity because it was exactly the sort of thing they were looking for all these years. The only place that had registered at all was a small black device called a sub seismatic, which winked away quietly as it at itself. It wrestled in darkness inside a leather satchel from which full project wore it happily round his neck. The contents of full prefect's satchel was quite interesting. In fact, they would only made up any earth cyclist by pop out his head which is why he always concealed him by keeping a couple of dog-eyed scripts of plays he pretended he was auditioning for stuffed in the top besides the sub everything sensomatic and scripts he had a, an electric thumb a short squat black rod smooth and matte with a couple of flat switches dolls at one end one and he also had a device that looked rather like a languish electronic calculator. This, about a hundred tiny flat press buttons and a screen about four inches square, at which one of the million pages would be summoned at a, million, at a moment's notice. It looked insanely complicated, and this didn't, and this don't, and this was one of the reasons why the smug plastic cover fitted on the words, don't panic. Fitted in it largely, large, friendly printed. The other reason was that this device was, in fact, the most remarkable of all books ever to come out of the greatest public corporations, Versa Minor, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The reason why it was published in the form of a micro sub compound is that it was printed in normal book form and instead of a hitchhiker, would require several inconveniently large buildings to carry it around in. Beneath that, in full post satchel, was a few bows, a notepad and a language bath towel with marks from Marks and Spencer's. Hitchcock's had a few things to say, to say on the subject of towels. A towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing an unseller hitchhiker can have. Partly its great practical value, it can wrap it around you for warmth as you bound across the cold moons, Jaguar Banker. You can lie on it at the brilliant marble sanded beaches of Sangres V, inhaling the heady sea vapours. You can sleep under it beneath the stars, which shine so readily in the forest desert world of Cacafuna. 
use it to sail a mini raft down the slow, heavy river moth. Wet it to use it in hand-to-hand combat. Wrap it round your head to ward off noxious fumes. Noxious fumes to avoid the gaze of the ravenous belt of beta beast, a feral, a mind-boggling, stupid animal. It seems if you can't see it, you c- it cannot see you, daft as a brush, but very ravenous. You can wave your tail in emergency, a distress beacon. Of course, dry yourself off with it. It still seems to be clean enough. More important, a tail can, has a most psychological value. For some reason, it's a strag. Strag non-hitchhiker discovers a hitchhiker has his tail with him. He will automatically assume that he is also in possession of a toothbrush, face panel, soap, tin of biscuits, flask, compass, mat, ball, string, gnat spray, wet weather, clear, space suit, etc., etc. Furthermore, the stag will happily lend the hitchhiker any of those of a dozen other items that the hitchhiker might accidentally have lost. What the stag will think is that any man who can hitch the length of breadth of the galaxy rough, rough its smooth stomach, struggle against the troubles with through, and still knows where his tail is, is clearly a man to be reckoned with. Hence a phrase that was passed in the hitchhiker's slang as, A, your sass, a hoppy, for prefect, there's a food who really knows whose tail is sass, no, be aware to meet with sexy with hoppy getting together guy food really amazing up together guy nesting nesting quality on top of the towel in full project sexual sub entry began to work rink quite quickly miles above the surface of the planet a huge yellow something going to fade out at Gerald Bank somebody decided it was time for a relaxing cup of tea. You've got to tell you, said Ford Perfect, suddenly to Arthur. Arthur, struggling for his third bite, looked at him. What? What? No? Should I have? He had given up being surprised. There didn't seem to be any point in it any longer. Ford clicked his tongue in irritation. Drink up, he urged. At that moment, the dog sounded a rumbling crash from outside, filtered through the low rumble of the pub. Through the sound of the jukebox, through the sound of the man next to Ford Hickcobin, over the whiskey Ford had eventually brought him. Arthur choked at his beer, leapt to his feet. What's that? he yelped. Don't worry, said Ford. They haven't started yet. Thank God for that, said Arthur. Relax. It's probably just your, uh, your house being knelt down, said Ford, joining his last pipe. What? shouted Arthur. Suddenly Ford's bell was broken. Arthur looked wildly around at him and sat around to the window. My God, they are. They're knocking down my house. What the hell am I doing in the pub, Ford? It hardly doesn't make any difference at, in this stage, said Ford. Let them have their fun. Fun, yelled Arthur. Fun. He quickly re- checked out his window again, and they were talking about the same thing. Damn near fun, he hooted and ran out of the f- pub furiously, waving a nearby empty glass. He had no friends at all in the pub that lunchtime. Stop, you vandals, you home wreckers, bawled Arthur. You half-crazed vagabonds, stop, will you? Ford would have to go after him. Turning quickly to the barman, he asked for four packets of peanuts. Oh, uh, thank you, sir, said the barman, slapping the packets on the 
bar. Twenty-eight pence, if you don't be so kind. Paul was very kind. He gave the barman another five pound note and told him to keep the change. The barman looked at him and looked at the fold. He turned, suddenly shivered. He experienced a momentary sensation he didn't understand because no one on earth had ever experienced. Before, in the moments of great stress, every life form that exists gives out a tiny subliminal signal. This signal being simply communicated exact an almost prophetic sense of how long the being is from the place of his birth. On earth it's never possible it's never possibly further than sixteen thousand miles from any birthplace, which really doesn't matter very far. So such signals are too minute to be noticed. Paul prefect was at this moment great stress. He was born six hundred light years away in the vicinity of Bisco. The barman reeled for a moment and hit it by a shocking, incredible sense of distance. He didn't know what it meant. We looked at full Perrick for a new sense of respect and almost awe. Are you serious, sir? He said with a small whisper which had led effect of silence in the pub. You think the world's going to end? Yes, said Artford. But this afternoon, Ford then recovered himself. He was, he was as at his slippers. Yes, he said gaily. In less than two minutes, I would estimate, a barman couldn't believe the consolation he was having, but couldn't believe the sensation he just had either. Is there anything we can do about it, then? He said. No, nothing, said Fold, stuffing the peanuts in his pocket. Someone in the bar, someone in the bar, past bar suddenly laughed righteously at how stupid it would become. The man sitting next to Fold was sitting... Bit snuddled by now, his eyes wavered their, their way to fold. I thought, he said, that if the world was going to end, we went to lie down and put a paper bag over our head or something. If you like, yes, said Ford. That's what they told us in the army, said the man, and his eyes began to long trek down at the whiskey. What do you, what, what, that will help, what, that, will that help? said the barman. No, said Ford, who gave him a friendly smile. Excuse me, he said. I've got to go. With a wave, he left. The pub was silent for a moment longer. And then, embarrassing enough, the man with a righteous laugh did it again. The girl had dragged along to the pub with him and gone to lo- loathe him dearly over the last hour or so. It had probably been a great sensation to her to know that in a moment, minute and a half or so, he was suddenly buried into a whiff of hydrogen ozone and carbon oxide. However, when that moment came, she too would be too busy evaporating herself to notice it. The barman cleared his throat and said to himself, he heard himself say, Last orders, please. The huge yellow magazines began to sink downwards and move faster. Paul knew they were there. It wasn't the way he wanted it. Running up the lane, Arthur nearly reached his house. He didn't notice how cold, cold it suddenly became. He hadn't noticed the wind. He didn't notice the sunny rational squall of rain. He didn't notice anything but the caterpillar. Bulldozers crawling over rubble that had been his house. You barbarians, he yelled. I'll sure cancel, I'll sue the council for every penny. You, you, oh God, I'll have you hung, drawn and quartered and whipped a board until, until, until you had enough. Ford was running after him very fast, very, very fast. And I'll do it again, said the old Arthur. And when I finish, I'll take all the little bits and jump on them. 
Arthur didn't notice that the men were running for the bulldozers. He didn't notice that Miss was standing heavily into the sky. What Mister had noticed was a huge yellow somethings was screaming through the clouds. Impossibly huge yellow somethings. I'll carry on jumping on them, said the old Arthur, still running, till I can get blisters and I can't think of anything more unpleasant to do. And then Arthur tripped, head, fell headlong, rolled and landed flat on his back. At least then he noticed that something was going on. His fingers shot after, uh, outwards. What the hell's that? He shrieked. Whatever it was, raced across the sky in monstrous yellow, tore the sky apart with mind-boggling sound and leapt into distance, leaving the gaping air to shut behind it with a bang that drove your eyes, ears six foot into the skull. Another one followed and did the same thing, only louder. It's difficult to say exactly what people on the surface of the planet were doing now, just because they didn't really know what they were doing themselves. None of them... None of it made any sense. Running into your house, running out of your house, howling nervous, nervously at, at the noise. All round the world, cities, it's, it's loaded with people. Cars drew into each other, and noise fell on them. Then it rolled off like a tidal wave over hills and valleys. Deserts and oceans seeming to flatten them as anything hit. Only one man stood and watched the sky, stood... The terrible sadness in his eyes and rubber bungs in his ears. He knew exactly what was happening, and this he knew ever since his soda table effort, Sensomatic had started winking in the dead of the night beside his pillow and welcomed him with a start. It had been, it had been what he waited for all these years, but he deciphered this single pattern sitting alone in his death, full death. All around in well cities exploded with people. Cars drew into each other, noise well on, it, on them, and then rolled off with a tidal wave over his hills and valleys, deserts, and oceans, seeming to flatten with everything, and it's everything it hit. Only one man stood and watched the sky, stole, stood for a terrible sadness in his eyes and rubber bangs in his ears. He knew exactly what happening and had done since his superbatic had started winking in the dead of night before his pillar awoken woken him from with a start. It had been what he had waited for all these years, but he deciphered the pattern signal sit, sitting alone in his small dark room in coldness and gripped him and squeezed his heart. All the races, all the galaxy who would come and said a big hello to the planet, Earth, he thought. It just didn't have to just to be the Vogans. Still he knew what he had to do. As Vogan craft screened for the air, Held, held above the, he opened his satchel. He threw away a co- copy of Joseph and the Amazing Coloured Dream Coat. He threw out a copy of Gospel. He didn't hadn't, wouldn't need where he was going. Everything was ready. Everything was prepared. He knew where the town was. A sudden silence hit the earth. Everything was, hap- it was worse than a noise. For a while, nothing happened. A great ship hung motionless. In the air, 
over every nation on earth, motionless, they hung huge, heavy, steady in the sky, a blasphemy against nature. Many people went straight into shock as the miners tried to encompass what they were looking at. The, sh- the ships hung in the sky in much the same way as the bricks don't, and still nothing happened. There was a slight whisper, a sudden spontaneous whisper of open abundant sound. Every high hi-fi set in the world, every radio, every television, every cassette recorder, every woofer, every tweeter, every mid-range driver in the world quietly turned itself on. Every tin can, every dustbin, every window, every car, every wine glass, every sheet of rusty metal became active as an intrusively perfect sounding board. Before the earth passed away, it was going to be treated as a very ultimate in sound reproduction, the greatest public address system ever built, but it was no concert, no no music, no funfair, just a simple message. People of Earth, your attention please, a voice said. It's wonderful, wonderfully perfect quadraphonic quad- sound, with the social level so low as to make a brave man, brave man weep. This is Prosec Vulcan, this is the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. The voice continued, as you no doubt be aware, the plans for development of the outing regions of the galaxy acquired a building of a hyperspatial express route through your solar system. Regrettably, your, your planet is one of the scheduled for, de- for demonization. The process is quite slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you. The PA died away. Uncommanding terror started and startled the people watching people Watching people on earth, a tear moved slowly through the gathered crowds, as if their iron filings and a sheet of bald at any magnet was moving beneath them. Panic sprouted over, desperate fleeing panic, but there's nowhere to be flee to. Obviously, this Vogans turned on the pier again, again, and said, There's no point in acting long surprise about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display in your local planning department on Alpha Satori. For fifty plus of your earth years, you had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaint. It's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. A PA felt suddenly silent again, and its echo drifted off across the land. A huge ships turned slowly into the sky, reached with easy power. On the other side of each hatchway opened an empty black space. By this time, someone somewhere had manned a radio transmitter, located the wavelength and broadcasted the message back to the broken ships. They plead on behalf of the planet. Nobody ever heard what they said, only heard a reply. The PA slammed back into life again. The voice was void. The voice was annoyed. What do you mean you have never been to Alpha Sasoria? For Christ's sake, heaven's sake, mankind, it's only four light years away, you know. I'm sorry. But if you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, that's your lookout. And it enjoys the energy demolition beams. Light pod into hatchways. I don't know, said the voice on the PA. A perfect, uh, apolephic bloody planet. I've no sympathy at all. It cut off. Then there's a ghastly silence. There was a ghastly silence. Then there was a ghastly silence. Then the Vulcan constructor fleet coasted away into the inky, starry void.